Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's October the 26th, a Thursday, 2023. Earlier today, I had the pleasure and honor of talking to one of America's most distinguished and iconic journalists, Ray Suarez, worked for PBS and NPR, always thought of him as the voice of NPR. And he has a new essay out about that sinking feeling, his experience of falling out of the American middle class for a series of accidents. Uh, and I entitled the, the show, uh, that sinking feeling of falling out of the middle class. Ray Suarez on his fear of being poor in the America of the inegalitarian 20s. I just take it for granted. It's almost instinct for most of us to think of the 20s as quote unquote inegalitarian. But my guest today may disagree. Uh, Branko Milanovic um, is perhaps the world's leading expert on inequality and equality. Indeed, on his uh, X page, he ranks income inequality number one, two politics, three history, and four soccer. Uh, quite an achievement. We'll talk maybe about soccer later. And he has some uh, irreverent um, observations about Equality. While most of us assume we're living in a more and more unequal world, uh, he seems to believe that we're actually becoming more equal. He's joining us from New York, uh, which is unequal, Branco, isn't it? Well, New York is very unequal. So, so is the U.S., but the world is getting less unequal. So is that the basic observation for you, is that it's in America things are less equal and the world is more equal yeah basically i think that captures the main uh, story because uh, countries individually have uh, over the last 30 to 40 years all practically become more unequal but what happened at the global level is that you had a significant rise of incomes in china in india indonesia vietnam and so forth and these countries display two features first when they started rising they were relatively poor. And secondly, they include lots of people. So if you have lots of people getting uh, getting out of poverty, basically, and sort of becoming closer in their relative incomes to the rich world, you do have a decline in global inequality. But the decline doesn't mean that there is no global inequality. The global inequality is still huge, but it's a little bit less than 30 years ago. You call this... Um... The Great Convergence, Global Equality and Its Discontents, an interesting piece uh, in, in foreign affairs this summer. It seems to me, and you're the expert on this, that the more equal we become, the more discontented. That's uh, uh, perhaps uh, Tocqueville noted that in the 19th century. Other historians and political philosophers have also observed that. Is there a connection, Branko, between uh, our dissatisfaction and our growing equality? Well, Andrew, what you mentioned, of course, is Tocqueville's famous statement that uh, the most dangerous point for a bad regime is when it tries to get better. You know, you can check with Gorbachev about that. Uh, 
And it is uh, true, but let me explain here when it comes to inequality, what I think is basically kind of summary of a situation. Uh, uh, the countries, within countries actually, let's take the US. US has become much more unequal now than it was in 1970s, or all the way up to, to Reagan basically. Uh, that by itself, I think led to some discontent revealed, especially during the global financial crisis. On the other hand, uh, Western countries have fallen in the relative pecking order because of the rise of Asia. So you have, I think, two types of discontent. One discontent is that within your own country, let's suppose you're the middle class. You mentioned actually the, the decline of the middle class and the fear of falling out. So let's suppose you are the middle class, working class, and then you fall behind compared to the guys at the top in your country. But on top of that, you have a decline in the relative position in the world because of rise of Asia. So there are these two discontents which happen at the same time. Let's talk about America. Branko, you're one of the world's leading economists, perhaps the world's leading authority on equality and inequality. Do you buy the conventional narrative of this neoliberal restructuring of the American economy from Reagan onwards? Well, you know, let me put it like that. I don't buy certainly the part which says that America had always been unequal. And it's actually not true if you look at the 19th century where America, the second part after the, uh, the end of the Civil War, when uh, the U.S. was actually less unequal than many comparators in Europe, like U.S. was less unequal than the, than the U.K. Now the situation is reversed. U.S. was less unequal than France also. So historically, there is no reason that the U.S. that the U.S. should be an outlier among OECD countries in terms of its high inequality. Second thing which I don't buy is the idea, which is very prevalent, or it used to be prevalent, is that um, uh, outcomes in terms of inequality don't matter because what matters is inequality of opportunity, and everybody in the U.S. has the same opportunity to become rich. And that we know is not true. We know empirically that there is a very strong uh, effect of uh, your neighborhood, of the parents that you have or you were born, gender, race, and so forth. So that story that, you know, everybody can become rich, uh, the sort of the simplified American dream, uh, I don't think it is true. In America, Branko, why has inequality grown so dramatically then? What's the reason? Is it government policy? Is it the nature of 21st century capitalism? Is it the Piketty argument that the, the nature of wealth results in a winner-take-all culture and economy? You know, all of that, you know, the, the issue when you put all of these um, causes, you know, is that um, they are kind of, um, they over-determine what happened. In other words, uh, this is an interaction. So if you just look at a couple of them, they would give you, let's suppose, 70% of the explanation. If you take a different combination, they would give you uh, 50%. So overall, you have an overdetermination because there is an interaction between the different causes. I tend to believe 
there, there are two uh, most important reasons. And of course, I'm really drawing here on the work that other people have done, because my work is more about global inequality, but obviously U.S. is a big part of that. Now, one cause, I believe, is globalization with the ability to outsource labor and actually to send your capital abroad to employ people in foreign countries and to reduce the employment of the labor force in the U.S. and similarly to import much cheaper goods. So in some sense, it is good. But on the other hand, it leads to a decline in income among a certain group of people. And that certain group can actually become pretty large at some point. And the second reason is really policy changes. There is no doubt that the 1980s, with the decline, uh, decrease in the tax rates, for example, reduced government spending and so forth, did have an effect. Did have an effect on uh, U.S. inequality. So, to summarize, I would say globalization plus policy changes. Is there any element of zero-sum economics when it comes to? the global system. You've argued that on the one hand, America's getting more unequal. On the other hand, the world's becoming more equal. You've connected them. Um, so does that vindicate Trump or even Biden in terms of their attitudes and policies towards the Chinese economy? Yes, I, I mean, very reluctantly, because I do think that this is the wrong policy from the global perspective. Uh, because such a policy would slow down the reduction in global poverty, would probably slow down China, uh, but might also slow down the U.S. growth. So I'm definitely not in favor of that policy, but I see the cert a certain logic, and that certain logic derives from the view, which is not entirely unreasonable, that globalization had something to do with the decline of the U.S. middle class, and that this content comes from the role of globalization. As I mentioned before, you know, there, there are these two paradoxical developments which are both kind of a source of discontent, increasing within national inequality and reduced global inequality. The reduced global inequality has this bizarre effect that people in the rich countries are feeling that they are not as rich as they used to be. Uh, I very often quote uh, Paul Collier, who actually had a very nice book about future of capitalism. Yeah, Paul's been on the show too, a professor at Oxford of economics. Exactly. He's, he's an absolutely great uh, person and a great economist. But he has this statement taken from the UK point of view, saying, oh, look, what this has now happened, what has happened now is that an ordinary worker, a British worker, who in the past used to feel sort of tall and strong when he would go to foreign countries, now doesn't feel that good anymore. Uh, but you know, that's the result of global uh, reduction of inequality. Uh, but it's understandable that actually people to some extent might not even like it, even if they, if you were to ask them directly, they would probably say, well, I love that the world is becoming more equal. But, you know, I also like the time when I felt much richer than everybody else. We are speaking with one of the world's leading experts, if not the world's leading expert on equality and inequality as an economist, Branko Milanovic. Uh, Branko, you mentioned the, the Collier example. Um, and of course, that's bound up with Brexit. Do you think that vision, and we're going to get to your book in a few minutes, but do you think that visions of equality and inequality actually drive politics? It certainly drove the Brexit vote. It may, it may drive people's affection for Donald Trump. I heard somebody, I think it was David Runciman, describe uh, Donald Trump as a, 
uh, a successful loser, a successfully unequal, or uh, are people's behavior in the political sphere, both as voters and politicians, increasingly driven by visions of equality and inequality? Yeah, it's a difficult question. You know, I would have, um, how should I say, I'm a biased person to ask for that because obviously because of my work, I focus on inequality and then you might tend possibly to overestimate the political impact of inequality. Well, I'm not as, uh, you may under, you know it better than anyone. I mean, you may underestimate it too. You seem pretty hard-headed on this though. Yes, I, I, you know, I do think that there are certain other issues. For example, take Europe, where actually certainly the question of culture and identity have now become fairly important in uh, in a political sphere. But then, if you go further, you can say why are these questions so important? And you say, well, they are partly important because of equality and inequality. In other words, many of the people who are dissatisfied with immigration, lack of integration of migrants or different culture and so on, they are also to some extent dissatisfied because they perceive these people or either taking their jobs or being actually more successful than them or resenting the fact that that they have to fight for a job with somebody who just came up from a different country. So then you actually see inequality playing a role even in, in something which is essentially, uh, you can say maybe, you know, a uh, cultural um, or, you know, immigration issue. So uh, inequality does play a role. You mentioned Europe, Branko. My understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is, is Europe's got the worst of, of all this in the sense that it's increasingly unequal in the world economy. And yeah. it's also made up of increasingly inegalitarian society you're originally from serbia um what 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 broadly i mean maybe it's hard to make generalizations about europe but what broadly is the european story in today's unequally equal world if you like you know i agree with you that europe i think is in a fairly difficult position today and the reason for that is that there are several you you alluded to a couple of them already first of all the uh, the weight of europe in the global system uh, if you measure it by economic power has declined simply because of the rise of asia so in other words your uh, share of the world economy has declined so that's the case first in europe secondly uh, europe has a, as you know on balance zero growth of population or even negative in quite a few countries. But, and that's the third point, Europe has not been very successful, although there may be some less unsuccessful cases of um, uh, acceptance of migrants. And you see that situation now deteriorating in the Nordic countries that have practically closed themselves off. And I saw that in Sweden, they would actually even send back uh, people who had uh, work permits. And um, I think probably in France and Italy, we are going to witness the same developments. So this is the kind of the ironic part, because uh, they would be technically better off with greater migration. But if that greater migration creates political problems of identity and uh, this, uh, I mentioned that before, the job competition and so on, then you cannot have it. 
so this is, I think, the problem of Europe. And the last point is that with the rising gap in incomes between Europe and Africa, in the sense that Africa has really been a failure in terms of economic development, uh, you will have an increasing pressure to migrate to Europe. And uh, so you cannot close yourself off um, if you have a whole continent in such proximity to you. Very briefly, Branka, before we get to your, your new book, Visions of Inequality, um, clearly one of the consequences of more inequality is uh, populism, economic and political populism, uh, resistance to immigration, uh, and a sense of cultural superiority perhaps that's the feature in europe europe as it becomes more unequal increasingly becomes the world's museum but what about perceptions of inequality and equality amongst people does that differ in in your research and knowledge from society to society or, or do most people usually get it are they truthful about whether or not they live in a an equal or unequal world I do believe, and actually there are studies about that, that people do get it, they know. Um, if you go to South Africa or you go to Mexico or Brazil, you know, people do get it. Uh, the question is, what is their tolerable, I think it's not only a tolerable level of inequality, it's actually what is perceived that to be tolerable level of income. So in other words, you have two things, you know, working together. Uh, you might actually accept greater inequality if you feel that your income is going up and that you have received whatever you actually feel dis deserving of. Uh, you know, there is this famous case, uh, that was a very nice um, uh, metaphor by Barry Hirschman, uh, quite a famous economist. He made this metaphor of a tunnel. In other words, when you're uh, driving car back home, let's suppose you're commuting, and then suddenly there is a traffic jam. Now, if your lane does not move and the other lane moves, at first it's a very good sign because you say, okay, well, they're moving, so something, you know, is clearing yeah. up, so we'll start <laughs> moving too. Well, but if it lasts 10 minutes that actually they are moving and you are not moving, you're not going to be quite happy. So I think this is a little bit like what happens in real life if you maybe see others sort of similar to you being successful, you might actually interpret that as a good sign that your turn will come. But um, otherwise, you might actually get very angry. Get angry, although in traffic, at least you can switch lanes. I'm not sure if you can switch lanes in life. We are talking with Branko Milanovic, the author of a fascinating new book, Visions of Inequality. We're going to take a short break, remind everyone that... Um, this show is brought to you by Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. Going to run a short video about Liberties, and then we'll be back with Branko Milanovic to talk about his fascinating new intellectual history of inequality, visions of inequality from the French Revolution to the end of the Cold War. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. 
Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are talking with Branko Milanovic, uh, the world's leading authority on equality and inequality. Branko, you've written a lot of books, very hard analytical books on uh, the reality of, of inequality, your, your book, Global Inequality, uh, The Haves and the Have-Nots, Capitalism Alone, all have been highly respected. Your new book is slightly different. It's about inequality, but it's an intellectual history. Why did you choose to go back rather than focus on the hard economic data? Well, one reason is that I'm getting older. I look more about the, at the past than at the present nowadays. Uh, but of course, it's uh, I, no, I'm not entirely serious with that. Um, I had this idea for a while simply because I really honestly enjoy tremendously reading uh, important authors in economics historically. So I, I found even the uh, sort of a note that I wrote in 2015, sketching basically the entire structure of the book. But I started writing it, actually forgot even about that note, but I started writing it uh, in 2019, you know, in parallel with COVID, actually. It, uh, COVID did help because I was basically sitting at home and reading these books. And um, I uh, enjoyed uh, reading the authors. Uh, I have to mention that the authors, there are six of them that I discussed in the book, starting with Francois Quenet before the French Revolution, then the usual sort of uh, trinity of Adam Smith, David Ricardo, and Karl Marx, and then uh, Wilfredo Pareto and um, uh, Simon Kuznets, because they were, of course, very much involved with work on... Uh, on income distribution. And then I have the last chapter which uh, discusses the evolution or you know changes in the studies up to the end of the Cold War. So that's the structure of the book. And um, uh, what was interesting is that you have to basically figure out and piece together what the authors like Smith, Ricardo, and Marx thought about income distribution because they don't have a title which says, okay, income distribution or inequality. They talk about incomes of different classes, and then you sort of, based on what they said about wages, rent, and profits, you kind of put this together and say what they seem to have implied about the forces that determine income distribution and the future income distribution. So let's begin, uh, as you say, in a history of inequality, uh, visions of inequality, one would expect to see Smith, Ricardo and Marx. We'll get to them. But you begin with somebody who I have to admit I'm, I'm not that familiar with, Francois Quenet, uh, a physiocrat. What was interesting? What's interesting about him? Why did you choose him? You know, uh, he... Well, there is a little bit of a split in the view where I think that Anglo-American literature tends to downplay uh, the physiocrats uh, in the sense that the belief is that the Adam Smith was really the founder of political economy. Uh, there is, I think, fairly strong case to be made that actually physiocrats were the ones who basically uh, left mercantilism and created the new political economy. And after that, of course, um, moreover, we know that, of course, Smith knew of them, that he traveled in France for two years. He even met Kenney. They are the, the only two authors in the book who have met each other uh, personally. Um, 
Kenney was older, uh, wrote in the, 1860, in the 1760s and actually 1750s even. And they're important for, in my opinion, for two reasons. And that's the reason they're in the book. Uh, the physiocrats and Kenney as the head of the physiocrats. Uh, the first thing that they actually have, which is a novelty, they speak of social classes. In other words, they divide the French society in different classes. They uh, talk about the top class, which is composed of, they're called propriétaires, which are basically three classes, aristocracy, clergy, and government. And secondly, which of course appealed very much to, to Marx later, is they define an economic surplus. Essentially, they say economic activity is conducted. You, you basically pay for all the necessary costs of hiring labor and renting capital. And the economic activity, in their view, only agriculture, produces a surplus. And that surplus is necessary in order for a society to function because somebody has to pay clergy to pray for you you know, government to protect your property, uh, the aristocracy maybe to fight for you. And so in that sense, they were really precursors or the first originators, first of the class uh, composition of society, and secondly, the idea of the surplus. Would it be fair to describe them as the first then sort of post-feudal or modern thinkers in the sense that they disassociated economics from status? Absolutely. I totally agree with that. I think it's not only my view, it's, I think, general of you. I'm not really adding something here, but they really dissociate themselves from the mercantilists, where the story is entirely different. Mercantilists are interested in the power of the state, in maximizing the treasury, uh, income, basically, treasure, sorry. And, uh, uh, and the physiocrats are actually interested, as I said, in class structure. Moreover, they're interested even in the income of workers partly because they are um, afraid of underconsumptionism. Um, the, the difficult part of physiocrats' writings is that they are very allusive. They are written oftentimes in maxims, so not really a very accessible form from today's point of view. And uh, they do have sometimes strange or paradoxical statements. So I, I said that in the book, they do appeal a little bit to masochistic economists who try really to go through this thicket of, of issues and, and problems. But then eventually you, you come to a, a clear, um, beautiful view of a, after climbing the mountain, you come to the top and really things are suddenly all that hard uh, slog that you went through before um, becomes worthwhile. Branko, do you think one of the reasons they wrote elusively is because in a, in a way the physiocrats were challenging the very order of the regime that was about to be destroyed? Yes, they were, you know, they actually had a very strong uh, desire to influence French uh, politics. And of course, they are the, the people who coined these two terms that we use all the time, laissez-faire and laissez-passer. Of course, laissez-faire, we know what it means, but laissez-passer was used really in order to uh, uh, change French policy where you had all kinds of internal barriers to trade within the country. You know, thing which exists, for example, existed in China until recently, uh, or India. So it's not something uncommon. Uh, and they were against these barriers and they were for free trade. So there are many elements that are there 
uh, that are then later also in Smith. I think that Anna Smith had this advantage of uh, being a much better writer uh, than than uh, than Kenne and uh, physiocrats. So you know, Smith is normally associated with being the founder of the science, if, the, if that's the right word, of, of, of economics. Um, and today, people are always present him also as someone who didn't embrace the idea of the free market. Uh, how, how do you present Smith in this book, both in terms of his analysis of inequality and whether he thought it was a good or a bad thing? You know, I wish actually people would start when they start a book, they should really start with, with Smith because he's known um, not so much well. I mean, people don't read him very frequently, but they know, you know, snippets from his writings here and there. But when you read, uh, particularly when you compare the theory of moral sentiments and the wealth of nations, I find the wealth of nations to be extremely uh, hard-headed. It was based on what was called uh, the granite of self-interest, indeed. But it's very leftist in many respects because Smith, in The Wealth of Nations, really questions the way that the rich people have become rich. He talks about the monopoly power, plunder, collusion, slavery, exploitation, uh, trading companies were actually, as he says, uh, People are just interested in leaving the making money and leaving the country where they are, totally indifferent to the fate of the country. So it's very critical of the rich and also very important point of their influence on policymaking. And in that sense, I find it the wealth of nations way more sympathetic to the let's call it left-wing point of view than a theory of moral sentiments where the rich are ridiculed, but the, uh, their right to have high income and wealth is really never subjected to a critique. Branko, a few weeks ago, we had Simon Johnson on the show. I'm sure you're familiar with his yeah. work. He has a new book out, Power and Progress, in which he makes the history of technology central to the history of inequality. Um, mm -hmm. What does Smith, Ricardo, and Marx, how do they agree and disagree on the role of technology and tools? And they were all, in one way or the other, both living through and students of early capitalism and early industrialization. You know, it's, a, it's an excellent question. You know, in some sense, it is... Uh, okay, let's suppose that you agree that technological developments are crucial in the way that we perceive inequality and other things, which I think is a reasonable proposition. It's a very Marxist proposition. It's in other words, it is what happens in the, on the, in the basis or infrastructure determines what people think in so-called superstructure. And you know, Marx has this famous uh, statement that uh, uh, that the spinning wheel basically produces capitalism. Uh, so I do believe that technological change was very strong uh, uh, influencer, if I can say it. it, had strong influence of how people perceive societies and perceive, you know, income distribution. Uh, but when you look at each individual writer, how much attention did they pay to technological change? You have differences there. 
Uh, Adam Smith saw technological change essentially as division of labor. Uh, so technological change is not necessarily an in innovation which comes out like a manna from heaven. It is really an you know, uh, simply different organization of the process of production. Uh, Ricardo had this famous chapter on machinery that many people quote still today, where actually he did see technological change leading to a deterioration in position of workers who may be sort of made redundant or who might actually lose out because of technological change, which was quite a radical view at the time. For Marx, technological change is sort of implicit in development of capitalism, including his many statements that are interpreted to mean that there will be a greater concentration of capital ownership because his argument was that larger, bigger capital always beats the smaller capital. And what is current terminology would be used, the entry costs are very high. So unless you have a lot of capital, you would not be able to start production and you would not be able to beat your, your competitors. So in his case, technological change, change comes through basically size of the enterprise. Larger enterprises are more able to take advantage of it. But Marx seems to think, certainly in his youthful idealism, that technology can free us from inequality. Was Marx, and, and this is the old question, you as a if not an old Marxist, someone who's certainly from Eastern Europe will appreciate this question. You've heard it before. Was Marx a Marxist when it came to inequality and equality? You know, referring to this famous statement that when he said, je ne suis pas Marxiste, uh, when there was some simplification of what, uh, what he believed. You know, the, the part of technology, it's a very good point. Uh, Marx had this... Uh, uh, millennial uh, sort of view, maybe utopian view to some extent, that once the technological development is so wide, so enormous, that we can actually satisfy all our needs easily, that would be the world of communism, where you would have, and he actually uses these words, I uh, cannot now remember, but when the uh, uh, everything would flow abundantly. And then uh, the uh, inequality per se doesn't really matter because if we all can have uh, 10 Ferraris and you take seven and I take six, it doesn't really make any difference. I can take 10, you know. Uh, and that was his view that in some sense technology would free us, but it cannot free us in a class society because a class society by definition would always make a distinction between me as an owner of capital who is hiring somebody. And when I hire somebody, I impose relations of power. And I think it's very important. You know, he cannot accept that capitalist society, however rich, can be a society of that kind of freedom of abundance, simply because there is always a power relationship between a wage, between a capitalist and a wage worker. And of course, the Marxist legacy now can be seen in Silicon Valley, of all places, ironically. I was thrilled, uh, Branco, that Vilfredo Pareto shows up in your book. I love Pareto because everybody hates him, both on the left and the right. Um, did, his, did he argue that basically equality and inequality was consistent through history, or is that a vulgarization of his theory? No, it is not. Actually, I think that he, he uh, what I, I called it, maybe somewhat too strongly, that he defended the iron law of inequality. Uh, 
he's very careful, actually, I spent quite a lot of time reading uh, his very careful writings. So if you were to put him at the court of law and say, did you, Alfredo Pareto, claim that income distribution would always be the same regardless of what society we're talking, whether it's socialist, capitalist, feudalist, uh, uh, Aztecs or whatever, he, by the way, mentions Aztecs and Rome also, uh, you would not be able to, con- uh, to convict him uh, because he has many caveats. But the basic story that he wants to convey is indeed that um, there was no significant change in income distribution, that it depends on natural characteristics of people. So in other words, it is an inbuilt you know, feature that there will be always an elite that would rule over the population, That elite would be created differently in different societies. And of course, I really enjoyed Pareto very much because he has this uh, view which then combines with the view of uh, circulation of the elites, his sociological mm. theory, which essentially says, okay, socialism may win, but you would have same inequality as under capitalism, except this would be different people. This would not be capitalists on the top. This would be government bureaucrats on the top. And to some extent, he was right in that. Yeah, he he introduces ideology. I mean, some people see him as interesting in terms of Marxism. It's that hard-headed Italian uh, attitude to power, certainly borrows from Machiavelli. And even Gramsci inherits something from Pareto, although he's on the left. So I agree. I think... uh, Pareto's fascinating. Finally, you end with Simon Kuznets. Again, the the bookends of of your intellectual history, Kinney and Kuznets are less well-known. Kuznets has been enormously influential in 20th century economics. What was his contribution to all this? You know, I believe that Kuznets is probably, after Keynes, Uh, most influential economist of the 20th century because his work, you find his work really uh, foundational in two uh, crucial building blocks of economics or political economy. The first is national accounts. How do we actually calculate what is the outcome of production? You know, going back to the surplus issue that, that physiocrats asked, So he was actually one of the founders with others, with you know Stone and Mead and others, founder of system of national accounts. And also the second building block of, of economics is the distribution. So how do we produce things and how do we distribute them? And of course, in, in income distribution, he's the author of the famous inverted U uh, story, which essentially says in simple terms that um, if you start with an economy of, let's suppose, like, uh, you know, He had basically in mind, I think, uh, northern United States or actually New England, let's say, with smallholders. You start with relatively equal society. Then with development, that society becomes much more unequal because of the differences in productivity between industrial sector and rural areas. People move to the cities. They move to New York, for example. New York offers many different jobs. Inequality goes up. But then eventually, you know, there is like improvement in overall level of education. There is reduction in capital incomes because capital has become much more abundant. And there is a political pressure to reduce inequality, well, through basically introduction of pension schemes, unemployment benefits, and so on. So the inequality would chart an inverted U curve. 
and it would go down. So that was his theory in the 1950s, early 60s. It's very influential. I then revised that in, in claiming that there was something like Kuznets waves, that actually the, the upswing was driven by technology, downswing maybe driven by politics, but definitely this was a very influential theory. Next week, um, or actually next month, I've got Jennifer Burns, a historian from Stanford on the show. She has a major new book out on Milton Friedman, The Last Conservative. Uh, it's notable, um, Branko, that you mentioned Keynes. Keynes isn't in the book, nor is Hayek and nor is Friedman. Did, they, did you scratch your head over that one? Did you consider adding them? I did. Okay, let me uh, sort of mention each of them. Um, uh, the book absolutely takes a uh, more empirical position. In other words, it says, like, what would different people think? In a, how would inequality, uh, how is inequality formed? And dynamically, how would it evolve? Now, if you look at people, let's start with Hayek, because it's an easy case. Actually, I've read quite a lot, I mean, I think I've read quite a lot of Hayek, but Hayek uh, has, of course, a normative approach to inequality. And I quote that approach, particularly when I talk about Marxist approach in communist countries, which is very similar to Hayek's in the following way. You may be surprised, but uh, both Hayek and uh, communists believed that once the background institutions are correct, in high case, once you have a market economy and all incomes that are achieved through market transactions are reasonable, they are just, and there is no point in really studying income inequality because essentially we know that whoever became rich, he became rich because he provided services and goods to other people which they voluntarily paid for. Uh, in, uh, under communist regimes, that was exactly the same approach. The background institutions are right. We don't have capitalists anymore. We don't have surplus labor, no exploitation. Consequently, all incomes are just and right incomes, and we should not really bother with studying income distribution. And I experienced that in Yugoslavia in the 1980s. So that was the approach, very Hayekian approach, normative approach. Forget about study of you know, inequality because it doesn't make any sense. Uh, for the others, I do mention Friedman, and of course, Friedman worked with Kuznets, actually, briefly. They had a, uh, a book about uh, uh, incomes in professions, uh, but I think that he did not really want to contribute much to the income distribution studies because he thought, essentially, that... Uh, that is a sub, uh, subsidiary issue, that once you have growth and once you have a market economy, you basically allow people to, you know, succeed and uh, spending too much time on, on um, inequality is, is really uh, wrong. I even criticize, I will not go into details now, but his idea uh, of the permanent income, which basically is also used in that sense to deny that there is... Uh, a possibility of different marginal propensities to consume between the, the the poor and the rich. So that's why he's not. I mean, he's in the book actually. He's mentioned, but obviously he's not as. Well, one I mean, of would the, it be you mentioned normative? But would it be fair to say that both Friedman and Hayek believe that a healthy society was one of a degree of inequality, if not extreme inequality? 
Yes, I, I would totally agree. Nobody would say, actually, after all, you know, Friedman was in favor of the uh, uh, negative income tax. So, and uh, Hayek was in favor of social assistance for the poorest people. But as I said, both of them, I would have discussed them if I were to include normative views. For example, then I would have to include Rousseau. I would have to include Rawls. Right, Rousseau and, is. Yeah, and, and, and let's end. I, I put Rawls in because I find Rawls particularly interesting. He's not an economist, a political philosopher, but his political philosophy is built on an idea of inequality, the idea Absolutely. that we might all be unequal so that we need to create social safety nets. Um, you mentioned Rousseau as well. Uh, what are the best political compliments to your theorists, your, econ your economic theorists of inequality? Would it be Rousseau and Rawls? Maybe you can, your, your second volume on this, Branco, can be vi visions of inequality in terms of political theory. I am afraid, actually, it's already been written, actually, at the same time I was writing my book, and we discovered that uh, at the end, um, there was a, a professor of history, uh, Daryl uh, McMahon, who wrote a book called Equality. It's actually coming out right now. I, I hope no, have to have get him on the show. Where does he teach? Show. He's teaching at Dartmouth. Oh, okay, we'll have to get him on the show. And so he wrote a, mm -hmm. Sorry, go on. You should have him on the show. Uh, he wrote a beautiful book uh, exactly on the part which I don't deal with, which is from the political angle and from the normative angle, going all the way back to the Judeo-Christian origins, then uh, different Greek authors, obviously Aristotle and Plato are there, and then moving to Machiavelli, Rousseau. And then, of course, we have some overlap with Smith, Marx, uh, but um, but McMahon's book goes into the present more because he discusses then identity politics and all of that uh, in the last two chapters. So it's a, it's a great book. Uh, I really think that it is a phenomenal complement to my book. It is, um, you know, these are the coincidences that sometimes come that uh, happen that actually two people come to the same idea, but to look at that from different angles depending on their comparative advantage. So uh, such a book is already there. Well, I'll have to get him on the show. Um, and finally, Branko, that book's written, so you can't write it. But is there a political philosopher whose work on uh, work on inequality you particularly like? I mean, you 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 talk about normative economics rather dismissively, but we all have a normative piece in us. And you, you as much yeah. as anyone else. I mean, who, which political philosopher do you think gets inequality and equality right? You know, I, I was not speaking dismissively. I just said it is not in this book because I had to. No, no, I understand. Yeah. But where's your it heart, just... Franco? You, we know where your head is. Where's your heart on inequality? Well, it's it's difficult to say, you know. I mean, uh, that's what I have. Let me let me try to avoid the question by saying that in the epilogue, I take a very optimistic view in the following sense: that I believe that we are now back to studying class as a, a determinant of inequality. We are back to looking at the elites through the top one percent, and we are actually looking also now at global inequality, which we never did in the past. So this is a, an, it opens an entirely new vista 
when you look at the global inequality, we just talked about that in the very beginning, the issues of migration, the issue of inequality of opportunity, because obviously you have global inequality of opportunity, which is much greater than within each nation state. Uh, so these are the, the, the new things which I believe actually would, uh, would uh, determine what we study in the future. And so I see a bright future for the studies of income inequality and uh, income distribution. But let me now try a little bit to say something about the question that you asked me about political philosophers. I do, I've read some of them, not as many as the economists, but I do actually find, uh, I have to say, Machiavelli's influence quite important. You mentioned his influence with Gramsci, with Pareto, uh, <laughs> even with Marx. So I do think that actually he defined very much a certain strand in political philosophy, not necessarily in a co- so much in income distribution. But when it comes to income distribution, I was quite influenced by, by roles, I said, normatively speaking, uh, more than with, uh, with Rousseau. Um, but uh, uh, that would be my... Uh, and obviously I was influenced by Marx, clearly. So there is no doubt about that because Marx has clearly a normative part, but he has a, a huge analytical part. And that's actually what, what is the attraction of Marx, is this really combination of analytics and the normative. And they're really part, you know, he made it into a single unit. Now we can decompose it, but he never thought of that, that as decomposable.